everyone, welcome to part two of our conversation about the history of race and racism in America with Dr. Matthew Rowley, an expert on American history. If you have not listened to part one yet, please go back and do that before listening to this episode so you can get caught up. As I'm recording this, yesterday America celebrated Juneteenth, the holiday that celebrates the day in 1865 when black slaves in Texas learned they were finally free. The timing is perfect then because that's where we pick up in American history. After the American Civil War, what happened to the black Americans who were freed from slavery? We hope you benefit from part two of this conversation with Dr. Matthew Rowley. Okay, I think we're ready to move, if, if we dare. <laughs> we're, ready, we're ready to move into the third gap in history. So this is starting right after the 1860s. All right, so far we've tried to fill in forgotten details of American history from 1619 to 1860. However, I think the most crucial time to remember is the century after the Civil War. Many modern white Americans believe that the Civil War placed Africans on a near equal footing with whites. This, however, could not be further from the truth. Africans were freed, but they were not compensated for decades of unfree labor. Africans could legally read, but centuries of slavery made it difficult to progress in education. African families didn't need to fear that their master was going to sell their wife or children, but so many families had already been ripped apart. Most importantly, immediately after the Civil War, many whites began organizing to reduce African Americans to an inferior status, and it is this last feature that we must focus on. So basically, as soon as the Civil War ends, there is an organized effort that I will argue is going on today to keep blacks in a subordinate place. Um, after African Americans had great hope in the aftermath of the Civil War, many in the North recognized that African Americans needed to own their own land in order to be truly free and they had been forced to work the land for centuries without pay. So some argued that former slaves were entitled to, form, uh, to some form of compensation, often in the form of land. However, the government failed to fulfill these expectations. The land remained in white hands, and soon former slaves were working on their old jobs under the sharecropping system. These former slaves were technically free, but in reality, there was little difference between this system and slavery. So you have almost immediately the re-enslavement of much of the African-American population. Yes, it's under the sharecropping system, but not much has changed. Um, and a lot of that is because all of the land, all of the property remained in white hands, um, in addition to gaining their freedom, many former slaves were given the right to vote. Freed slaves voted in great numbers, and they were able to elect African Americans to many prominent positions at the local, state, and national level. So you have this flowering of, of African American leadership in government. Um, however, almost as soon as this right to vote was given, many attempted to limit it. Within a few short years, the right to vote was taken away in practice, and blacks would need to wait another century for this right to be restored. Um, so you have this effort 
from the beginning to keep blacks from voting, even though they were entitled to it. Although it is more subtle today, some whites in the present continue to try to deprive the black community of people in the black community from the right to vote. And this takes many different forms today. I'd recommend a book called Give Us the Ballot. And this tells the century-long history of trying to deprive African Americans of the right to vote. After the Civil War, blacks slowly gained more rights. In response, Southern, Southerners started openly terrorizing them. So we're going to see a pattern throughout American history develop. As soon as African Americans start getting more rights, there is more violence that they start suffering. So this was the era of the Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan is a post-Civil War phenomenon. Any black who pushed for equality could expect to be killed, often with police involvement. And that's, an, that's another key uh, feature of this. Um, sometimes the police were present. Sometimes the police were lynching. Sometimes the police just refused to prosecute the whites who were killing blacks. In all three of those cases, uh, the police were involved. Can I, can I just jump in really quick for students who may not know, uh, what was the Ku Klux Klan? So they were a group of, um, of white Southerners, although they, they existed also in the North, who, as blacks were entering more and integrating more into American life, they were, they were the ones who were going to protect traditional values. They were the ones who were going to protect the purity of white women. They were the ones who were going to protect the children. And, um, and they're most notorious for wearing the white hood and, uh, and setting crosses ablaze. Um, but they, they would basically terrorize the black community into submission. Um, the, the fear of armed white men who will kill any black who aspires to be uh, equal with whites. Um, and the Ku Klux Klan is still in operation today, although it is much smaller than, um, than it was at the turn of the century. Um, does that answer? Yes, yeah. And Matt, while you're there, um, just to give us a little context, like how widespread was this? I mean, because oh. I know a lot of people, like the same with like the differing interpretations of the Bible that promote slavery. I know some people might say, oh, it wasn't that many. Can you speak to that? Like how widespread were these beliefs and, yeah, give, and give, the KKK? If you'll give me one second, I just want to look up the, the number um, and then I'll... I have a, I have, so from a previous webinar that I looked at, I have in my notes, starting in the 1920s in the South primarily, but there were 40,000 yeah. white ministers. Yeah, that's, that's the statistic that I was looking for was the number. Maybe you can say that because um, yep. I, I can't find it. Um, yep. So, so in the 1920s, so what was that? 60 years after slaves were freed, there were 40,000 white Christian ministers who were actively recruiting to the Ku Klux Klan from their pulpits. So they were pastors who were part of an organization and were recruiting in churches to essentially terrorize the black community. Yeah, and so at, at the same time that you have this, this continuing call that 
politics and religion should be separate. You have these thousands of ministers who are using their office in order to uh, in, in, in order to spread an organization that is terrorizing the black community. I, I can't think of any more insidious way to mix politics and religion than that. Yes. So, so to answer that question, very, very widespread problem. Very, this very not... widespread problem. And, and even, um, you think, what, what was the first movie ever watched in the White House? Well, it was... A Ku Klux, it was a, it was a film about the Ku Klux Klan, uh, protecting the purity of white women, and is that the birth of a nation? That's, that's the birth of a nation. Yes, and President President Woodrow Wilson said that it was like, it was like riding a thunderbolt or something like that. Um, that's how exhilarating it was, and he wanted to watch it over and over again in the White House, um, and so Woodrow Wilson was the son of a Presbyterian minister, I believe, and one of the most religious presidents that we had in a lot of ways. And he did more to segregate our country again and to uh, give a voice to uh, overt racism within the highest levels of the government. So um, maybe, I'll pick, maybe I'll pick it up there. Uh, so we, we've seen mm -hmm. the, the Ku Klux Klan is growing in its terrorism of black Americans. Um, and we've seen, we see that black advancement prompted white anger, resentment, and violence. It was during this period that many of the controversial Civil War monuments were erected. The, so these monuments that everybody is saying they need to be torn down, they weren't made five years after the Civil War. They were made during the time when, when African Americans were making significant advances politically and um, as far as civil rights goes. So the monuments were often a twofold statement. First, they communicated the belief that, um, that the, the rights of the state should be superior. Um, second, these statues were a way of communicating to blacks that whites were superior. And I think that's really important to notice. They, when they were erected, it was, it was you know half a century after the Civil War, and they were statements to say that the black community should fall in line underneath the white community. Um, can, can we camp out there for just a minute? Because I think even today, things like the Confederate monuments and ideas like uh, an emphasis on the rights of the individual states within the United States to decide what they want to do, all of those conversations have significant um, undertones or overtones of um, racial superiority but if you ask people today they'll deny that yes. they'll say oh no the confederate monuments are about remembering history or states rights are all about not having interference from the government but you're saying the origin of those conversations m maybe the states rights debate is a bigger debate that got pulled into this but things like the confederate monuments those were originated as a way to enforce the superiority of white Americans. They d it was, yes, um, in, in, a, in a vast uh, majority of cases. And, I mean, people did have a variety of reasons for why they wanted to commemorate the Civil War, but they can't, their reasons can't easily be separated from racism. 
And yeah, it's it, it, it's it's complicated, and because it's complicated, that gives people deniability if they want to yes. hide that kind of racism. Yeah. Yeah, and people um, people talk about erasing history, and part of what I'm doing in this in this podcast is showing that that history has already been erased. White white Americans have already forgotten most of what they did to to African Americans. And um, yes, I do worry about history being further erased in our country, um, but so much of it has already been forgotten. Hmm. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. You can keep no, going. Um, so this period. We, uh, we talked a little bit about how racialized science and racialized theology grew together. Um, so we're going to see a further growing and, and, and flowering, if you could call it that, of racial science. Scientists began uh, conducting experiments on black Americans. They argued that blacks were evolutionarily unfit to reproduce. They, further and, uh, they went further and they forcibly sterilized minorities so that they could not have children. Uh, so we have you know, large portions of America, uh, the Irish of, of which uh, Chris and I are descendants, a lot of the poor Irish were also forcibly sterilized because they were unfit to have children at this time. Um, and we see a lot of minority communities that this happened to. Um, How recent are you? Are we up to now? Uh, with this I happening? mean, we're we're talking like you know, eighteen nineties to you know the eugenics movement is really kicking off in the nineteen tens, nineteen twenties. Yeah, and 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 this is done in the name of progress, in the name of enlightenment, in the name of civilization, in the name of science. Um, these racist policies and. And what you see at the time is um, the Eugenics Association of America is having yearly, uh, yearly awards for the best sermons on, on white supremacy. And you have a shocking number of ministers, upstart ministers, you know, who are, who are publishing their sermons in order to gain this prize for being the best expounder of the theology of white supremacy. Um, and we're going to see this play out in Nazi Germany and because of how horrible, because of how horrible it went in Nazi Germany, Americans are going to deny any association with it. Mm -hmm. And not the Nazis actually believed that America went too far. The Nazis believed in their writings that the Americans were too racist I know that's kind of hard and shocking to think. Wow, yeah. Um, but they thought that the way that, that Americans had systematically uh, pushed out and killed the Native American population and the way that they had uh, enslaved Africans, they, they thought that Americans were, white Americans were almost barbarous and that the Nazis were civilized in their, their, their way of racial superiority. Um, mm. So then, then we have World War II, where eugenics ends up falling out of favor, and people aren't trying to genetically engineer an, uh, you know, a perfect white society anymore. But eugenics falls out of favor, but then white Americans began pushing for African Americans to abort their babies. And so you have 
Uh, you have the family planning, you have abortion. All of this is tied in with racial science. And uh, there's just a continual effort to keep, uh, to keep blacks who are, who are still viewed as, um, as unfit from reproducing and burdening society. Uh, so there are all sorts of things related to work going on as well. Even though slavery itself was illegal, the law allowed someone to be forced to work if they broke the law. So going all the way back to the Civil War, um, slavery was considered illegal unless someone broke the law. And then they could be forced to work. And sure enough, Southern whites began arresting blacks at alarming rates. These so-called criminals were not sent to prison. They were leased out to whites who put them to work on farms. So instead of slaves working on a plantation, it was now prisoners working on a plantation. When it became illegal to force convicts to work on plantations, Americans instead... So, so eventually people are going to become uncomfortable with this. They're going to see that, you know, oh... Blacks are laboring in the fields just like they were in slavery, and their conscience is going to become pricked in mm -hmm. some ways. And they're going to say, you know, this, this is only slavery by another name. But what happens is really important. It's not that our criminal justice system is amended. We just, as Americans, opt for mass incarceration. So instead of sending people to plantations, it's sending them to spend the rest of their lives in jail. Mm -hmm. Um and can you can you give examples of some of the crimes for which uh, black people would be arrested under these laws and put to jail and made to work as if in slavery? Yeah, I, I mean, being being out at the wrong time, looking the wrong way at a woman, using the wrong water fountain, um, falling into debt. Uh, I mean, y you name it, it was criminalized. And and you know when you see hashtags about you know black being a crime in America. Um, it goes back, it it goes back centuries, and and um, and all the while, all the while, there's the sense of superiority of we've put racism behind us, we've put slavery behind us, we've put the sharecropping system behind us, and it just morphs and changes. It doesn't really go away. Can can you also give us again a sense of scale here? Because I, I. Just so many people are are gonna say, look at this and say, oh, that's ju just the small. That's the exception. Yeah. That's not the rule. Yeah. And and or even can you or, or even referencing our previous conversation. Oh, that was only a southern thing. Yeah. Yeah. Can you give us some scale? Like, are I mean, are we? How widespread is this in the country? Um, particularly in the South, it's incredibly widespread. It's I don't have the statistics in front of me, but it it was, you know basically all of those freed slaves need to work and so they end up in, in order to have some kind of a livelihood and they end up in relations in relations that are almost no different from slavery um and you know and and one of when this turns to enslaving quote unquote criminals what ends up happening is that now Whereas, whereas black skin or brown skin was identified with inferiority, now you're going to have black and brown skin identified with criminality. 
And that, that persists to today mm-hmm. and, um, and has ongoing ramifications for the way, for a whole host of issues in relation to the police. So you're saying this is not this is not like an isolated no. this is not just a couple counties that like this is Yeah, this is this is widespread. This is widespread across across America, particularly the south. Um we'll get to the north in a few minutes. Um for for any northerners who are feeling superior at this moment, um <laughs> there there will be some very surprising things that have been forgotten in history. Um and just to set this in context for our students, you're still, we're still pre-Martin Luther King. We're still pre-Martin yes. Luther King, yes. Okay. Yep. So in addition to all of this, the federal government argued that segregation was legal. So we're kind of retracing history and looking at it from different angles here. Uh, whites and blacks could have separate facilities, separate healthcare systems, separate schools, provided that they were equal. But they were far from equal, and whites continued to have better schools, better health care, and better housing. When the federal government forced whites and blacks to attend the same schools, many whites left the public school system and started private religious schools. Thus, religious liberty and religious education in America became a way for many whites to maintain racial purity. So... For the last few months, I had been living in North Carolina. And you would drive around North Carolina, you know, back before COVID, and you were actually going places. Um, you, driving around North Carolina, and you see, you see billboards uh, for such and such Christian academy, private school for your children. And on the bottom it says, since this, you know, since uh, whatever year it was that it was founded. And... They were generally all founded within one or two years of the federal government saying that blacks and whites have to go to the same school. Yes. And so you, you have, a, particularly in the South, um, private, sc- private school in the South became a way of, of keeping blacks and whites separate. Um, private school in the North, depending on the group, often has the desire is to integrate black and white. Um, it's, it's pulling people who, you know, who are from different socioeconomic backgrounds or different neighborhoods and putting them together in the classroom. Whereas in the South, it was often about keeping the communities further apart. Um, which is part of why when, whenever issues about private schooling come up at the federal level, half the country is thinking of the horror of, of, you know, religious segregation. And the other is thinking about, you know, um, bringing people together. Um, so all of these factors in the South make, make the South a place where, where former slaves and those born to former slaves no longer want to live. Um, as a result of these factors, upwards of 6 million African Americans moved from the South into Northern cities, hoping for a better life. However, in the North, they faced discrimination and violence. So the North had been priding itself on being, uh, being enlightened and being um, tolerant and, and all of these things superior to the South. And yet, when Africans are arriving in the North, um, they're treated with hostility. Whites feared African Americans would steal their jobs. Whites in the North associated blacks with criminality. 
Whites argued that black men would rape white women. They refused to work if workforces were integrated. Uh, whites often rioted against black business owners and burned down their property. So you have, this is really a time of uh, where a lot of African Americans are actually becoming quite wealthy at this time. And you see that it's, it's actually whites who are going to burn African-American businesses to the ground, and this is taking place in the North. Um, in Northern cities, blacks were only allowed to set up their businesses or own houses in certain neighborhoods. So you have this, you know, yes, you're welcome to our city, but you have to be there. Um, whites allowed blacks to have communities only if they were located near a tr near the train lines or near a dump or near some other undesirable location. So you have this ghettoization going on of whites basically not allowing uh, people of color to live um, in, in any place but the undesirable locations. In many northern cities and suburbs, there developed a rather alarming way of keeping people of color out of white neighborhoods. When whites purchased a home, they signed an agreement promising never to sell or rent homes to persons of color. So these are called restrictive covenants, and some of them I've read were even on the books until the 1980s, where, ba where basically you go into a lot of housing developments, and it's explicitly written into the housing developments that the property will never be sold to a minority. And at this point, people might say, okay, that's, you know, an individual developer. That's an individual racist community. That's an individual. And, and they, would, they would say, you know, this wasn't all of America. But it's important to note that the federal government uh, protected and promoted these racial covenants. So the federal government gave its sanction and wanted communities to be segregated so that uh, they thought that, you know, in order for whites to have their houses be worth a lot of money, there couldn't be any blacks in the neighborhood. In order to not have blacks, you have to have these covenants that keep blacks out. Um, and so, uh, so even when black Americans could afford to move into the suburbs, they were often legally restricted from doing so. And, and this is recent memory still. Um, and I, I'm relatively young, and, and this is getting very close to the, the year when I was born. Mm -hmm. um, so during the Civil Rights Movement, black leaders like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. pushed for equal treatment, although they often fundamentally disagreed over methods and aims. Black ministers, in particular, became the conscience of the nation trying to get white Americans in the North and South to confront and lament their history of racism. And I, I want to focus just for a second on this history of lament. So, because the African American community and minority communities in general have a long and rich tradition of lament, and white churches often don't know how to lament. They don't know how to... Um, feel the remorse and the weight of an unjust history. And so when African Americans are calling white America to lament and all of that, what they're, what they're doing is they're not trying to shame white Americans, usually. They're, they're trying to almost, almost invite white Americans into a funeral service. 
into invite white Americans into the pain of what it's like to be a minority in America. Um, and so the call from, from uh, people like Martin Luther King Jr., the call for America to lament and to face up to its history isn't, isn't a call to um, make, make Americans feel, white Americans feel outside. It's a, it's a way to include them into the pain of the African-American community. Um, and the call to lament is deeply, um, it, it's, it's an intimate thing. Um, so black ministers became the conscience of the nations, and they're pushing uh, towards a nuanced and critical view of history. We must remember that Martin Luther King Jr. was hated by most whites. So today he's one of the most revered people around the world, and he was hated by most whites. His vision for a just and equal America has only been partially realized. His speeches and his essays if white Americans would actually read them, are still deeply uncomfortable and deeply challenging because of how far we fall short. So this brief sketch of the third gap in historical memory has aimed to fill some of the forgotten parts of American history from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement. Our entire survey so far prompts an important question um, over these two podcasts. Here's the question. From 1619 to the 1960s, was there ever a time where African Americans were treated with equality? Was there ever a time where African Americans were treated with equality? Certainly some whites, on an individual basis, treated some blacks with dignity and equality. But was there ever a time when blacks were legally and systematically placed on an equal footing with whites? Uh, from this brief survey of the first 341 years of American history, I believe the answer is no. That's not what I want to believe about my country, but I don't think that there was ever a time where blacks as a group were treated as equal with whites as a group from uh, 1619 to 1960, the 1960s. Yeah, and and this is probably the most common argument that I hear about, you know, e even from students that I've talked to who are coming into this fresh and they say, oh, well, you know, 1860s, those, that was a long time ago. You know, you would think that things would have healed by now. But you, in the, in the very beginning, I don't know if people caught it, in the very beginning, right after slavery, you mentioned that once black Americans got the right to vote, they very quickly started electing black leaders and, you know, started to, to flourish, at least in that way, until white Americans intentionally intervened and, atten and intentionally started to oppress them in all of the ways that you outlined. So it's not that we, um, we got to the end of slavery and, you know, they were a little bit behind. It's that we got to the end of slavery they were a little bit behind, and then we consistently kept them um, from attaining equal status. We consistently have created systems and areas that um, hurt black people as a whole. And so when people ask the question, well, didn't the end of slavery solve everything? Um, you know, have knowing the history and knowing how intentionally and honestly comprehensively 
that black Americans were uh, oppressed in the hundred years that follows, it's very easy to see how we got to where we are today. Mm-hmm. I, and I just had a quick, uh, quick observation too, that I think like, I think when you mentioned slavery and like why, why the surprise that people have that it just didn't go away when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. It's because I think part of it is that white Americans, like we have this, we've grown up hearing the story of the Exodus and it's a, a fundamentally different situation being described. Like in the Exodus narrative, the, the Jewish people leave the land of their oppressor. But in this, we have the, the slaves still living in the land as a minority under the rule of their oppressors, which is totally different. And I think it helps me understand why this problem could never go away quickly without repentance on the part of the oppressor, which never happened, as Matt established. And, and honestly, if we're looking at that story, we would be the Egyptian kingdom that enslaved the Israelites. We, you know, that would be our role in the story. We would not be the Israelites. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We intend, we intend, we tend to insert ourselves into the hero of the story, and that's not mm-hmm. the case in the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Michelle, do you have anything that you want to contribute? Um, no, I mean, not necessarily in terms of questions, but yeah, I just really appreciate Matt the way that you're, uh, yeah, drawing out this picture and really touching on these gaps that we we as listeners right here and right now have missed, and those maybe who will listen to this podcast. Um, we're never aware of and yeah so I just really appreciate being able to listen to that thank you yeah and I I think too Matt you're you're helping us see a lot of and now at this moment for one second I'll speak to white Christian Americans who quickly object to the idea of repenting or confessing Mm -hmm. wrongdoing but I think you're helping us to see why that is really the only response that that the church well as a starting point <laughs> that's mm-hmm. where the church needs to begin um, because I, th- I think for too long we've said that it was ancient history and now you've gotten us up to 1960 and we're we're like literally knocking on on the door of the the era in which we live and and that's a little bit scary <laughs> yeah my, my my dad was born in the 1960s so we're yeah. we're his his the day the day he was born is coming up very quickly in this story um which is the, the perfect segue into <laughs> our our last gap in history um from the 1960s to 2020 yeah i was going to approach this fourth and final gap a little bit differently and part of it is because um partisan politics so clouds this time period. And, you know, when I talk with white American Christians, they, you know, they will say, oh, you know, okay, I I recognize that this bad thing happened or that bad thing happened, but those were all democratic policies or those were all Republican policies or those were all. And so even, even when you can get some white Christians to the edge of seeing that there's an issue they then blame the issue on somebody else. And so as a result, they never have to lament it. They never have to repent it. They never have to, um, to, 
to make it, to make uh, an effort to change the way that our system works in this country. So this uh, fourth section is going to be a little bit different um, in the way that it unfolds. Uh, so we've come to our final historical memory gap from the death of Martin Luther King Jr. to the death of George Floyd. In the present, many whites argue that blacks need to stop viewing themselves as victims and need to take responsibility for themselves and for their community. The problems that plague black communities are viewed as the fault of blacks themselves. Many whites argue that the Civil War freed black Americans and the Civil Rights Movement placed blacks on an equal footing. But as you said, uh, Zach, they, you know, the real case is that they started way back from the starting line and then there was a and then there was an organized effort to keep them back um that has in many ways not not stopped um many white christians argue that the church still today should preach the gospel and not get tangled up in the politics of race and i i guess what i want to emphasize here is that racial justice should not be a partisan issue it should be, a, it is a political issue. It's political in every sense of the word, but it should not be a partisan issue. And the difference is, so partisans mean like, I want my political tribe to win, or I want your political tribe to lose. There's no reason why racial justice should be a partisan issue, um, even though it is deeply political. It should be something that both political parties in America can get behind. Um, so I don't want to deny the remarkable progress has been made in the time since Martin Luther King Jr. and George Floyd. However, I want to stress that African American communities are still at a significant disadvantage. Many poor whites are similarly disadvantaged, and there are deep historical reasons for this inequality that I can't explore here. But the inequalities between the white community as a whole and the black community as a whole are glaring. These inequalities take many forms. There are fewer education opportunities for minorities, fewer resources for parenting, poor infrastructure and basic necessities like clean water, inadequate health care, vast differences in pay and the benefits at work, vast differences in housing, unequal application of criminal law and punishment. As a whole, blacks have never been placed on the starting line with whites. Systemic racism and exploitation meant that many whites gained a head start and built their success on the free or cheap labor of African Americans. And it was police brutality that prompted these recent protests across the, the United States and across the globe. Many whites view the outrage as unjustified and disproportionate. So that's one of the common themes that I'm seeing as people are posting on Facebook. You know, yes, they will say that George Floyd's death was was regrettable. Yes, they would say they might even go so far as to call it some degree of murder. Um, but they would say that this isn't part of a larger pi picture. This isn't part of a larger story of racism. Um, and that's that's a lot of what I'm I'm trying to challenge here. Um, black history, I've been arguing in the in these podcasts, is American history. At no point were our narratives separated. Blacks contributed to the United States 
um, in so many ways across the centuries, and unfortunately, the white mistreatment of blacks has an equally long history. Racism did not end with the end of slavery. Slavery turned into forced labor for black blacks who were convicted of crime. When this practice was made illegal, African Americans were simply arrested and imprisoned at alarming rates. Our modern system of policing and mass incarceration grows directly out of slavery. I'm not making a partisan political argument. I'm detailing my nation's history. Democrats and Republicans alike should be alarmed at the way that racism morphed and continues to affect the black community. Democrats and, Re and Republicans should be able to unite around remembering centuries of exploitation and exclusion. Democrats and Republicans should be able to recognize that however no noble American ideals are and however inspiring American history is, Americans across the centuries have frequently failed to live up to our ideals. If we think the protest over George Floyd's death is a, if we think of it as a massive car crash involving the whole nation, the sequence of events that led to that crash have stretched back at least four centuries. And we would do well to remember this history as we work for a more just and equal America. Yeah. Um, so br really briefly, can we, can we talk about one aspect of, from the 1960s to today, um, earlier, um, I can't remember which gap it was right after, uh, the abolition of slavery, when slavery ended, you talked about this idea of mass incarceration being something that disproportionately affected black people. Because I mean, you, you would, Correct me if I'm wrong, but all of the laws that they posted um, were on its face value for both white and black yep. Americans, but they were only enforced on black Americans as a way to oppress them. This was in the years following the Civil War. Um, can you talk a little bit, and you also mentioned un the unjust criminal system in the modern time. Can, can you talk a little bit about some of the ways from the 1960s to today we've seen that double standard in enforcing mm -hmm. laws and what effect that might have? Yeah, so I would first say that in, in the South in the years following the Civil War, many of the laws were just targeted at black, at, at the black community. Um, and so they weren't equal laws that were in theory supposed to be applied to everyone equally. Um, okay. they, they were very specific and targeted at, mm -hmm. at uh, uh, criminalizing black behavior, criminalizing black existence in a lot of ways. And um, so eventually America will have, will not tolerate this, these kind of laws. And so we end up having laws on our books that are, um, you know, they're in theory supposed to apply to everybody, um, across the board. And I, I think, so uh, a couple months ago, I was driving from North Carolina up to Connecticut and uh, I got pulled over by a, by a police officer. And I've been talking for several years with my children about uh, police shooting uh, African-Americans and minorities. And yes, they also shoot white people uh, for reasons that I, I don't think are very good. Um, but I've talked with them in particular about this with the African-American community. And so I get pulled over in Virginia and 
my hands immediately go up on the steering wheel. And, uh, you know, I put them there, and I can tell that my kids are a bit nervous. And I just remember saying, girls, there's nothing to be afraid of. And it was at that moment that I, I couldn't finish my sentence because I knew of my white privilege at that point. And I knew that, that I knew that I was going to get out of that fine. You know, yes, I would have to pay a fine, um, but that I, I would get out of it, you know, having, having learned that I should uh, obey the speed limit a bit better. I was going to walk away with my life. And the black community, minority communities, um, do not, um, do not have that luxury. And I, I remember talking with a friend, we, we used to work together, um, in an after school program in Minneapolis. And he had told me, so he was driving the kids home. Many of them were African American. He was driving the kids home and, um, he gets pulled over because he has a tail light out. And the officer has all the young kids get out of the car and they're all searched. And he is allowed, he, the driver, is allowed to sit there and not, not be patted down. And there are just so many ways in which um, the inequality comes out in practice, even though it is not there, supposed to exist in principle. Um, you, could, you could look at how a similar crime, if it, is, if it is committed by a white person as opposed to a black person, a similar crime will get different penalties depending on the color of your skin. It's not that the jurists are, or the people on the jury are sitting there saying, you know, we want to be racist in the way that we apply the law, but that is what is happening consistently across the country. Um, the death penalty is disproportionately uh, used against, against um, minority uh, poor men. And, you know, if a, a white, wealthy man doesn't really need to worry that he's going to get the death penalty, almost no matter what he does. Uh, but that is not the case for minorities in America. Um, there are just so, so many different ways in which this, our long history of racism and our long history of associating darker skin color with crime plays out. Um, in, in, in a thousand different theaters across America every day. Yeah, and there are there are hundreds of statistics that will that would back up what you're saying in terms of, you know, I I recently read one that said you know in terms of drug use among Black and White Americans it's roughly the same, but the penalties are about six times higher. Yeah, um, if and, if you're a Black American, and if you think of um, you know. Being being high in public, being drunk in public, if you're if you're a white American and you do that on the university campus after mm-hmm. after a really good um, football match, you're just you're one of the boys doing doing what college students do. If you're a minority sitting on your front porch, you're gonna have a very different experience with the police. Yeah. Yeah, and this uh, this applies to to drug charges, to um, like you said, the death penalty, to being pulled over, the amount of arrests that happen when you get pulled over, and 
um, you know, the end result, I, I think, like you were saying, is mass incarceration. The, the effect is the same, even though the way that we get there is a little bit different today. Mm-hmm. Matt, I have two questions for you, and I don't know, Zach, if you think these this it would be good for the podcast or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I already think they're terrible. <laughs> okay. Um, one, so the first, and uh, I'm, I'm not meaning to be devil's advocate at all, but just like looking at violent crime statistics, um, it does appear that violent crimes are much higher per capita among people of color, um, with the distinction that it's not generally like black committed against white or uh, Latino committed against. It's usually like within one's own community of color. But I'm just wondering, Matt, if you could speak to. Do you know like are are those rates higher because they're more likely to get a guilty verdict? Um, I'm just trying. I, I understand the system is so complex mm-hmm. and um, and I want I want to be able to think rightly about this yeah. like are the police responding the way they're responding because they perceive that the black and Latino population are more violent in general mm-hmm. um, how, yeah can you speak to that is is that yeah yeah I, I feel like on the issue of modern crime, it's it's like a it's like a a ball of thread that is so entangled with our long history that it's almost impossible to pull at one strand of it and analyze it separately. Um, I don't know the statistics offhand about you know proportions of um, people of certain communities who commit crime in relation to others. Um, but I think I would say that that often the reasons for crime, so one, the reasons for crime um, often have deep historic roots for why certain communities feel that crime is permissible or necessary or justified. Um, and then there's also other things about, um, you know, if, if, um, you know, if, if blacks are pulled over at a higher frequency than whites, which they are, um, you're going to end up with higher convictions for various crimes. Often the, the attempt to, the attempt to, uh, stop crime while it's small ends up in whites who commit very small crimes. It's just brushed off. And, um, and then, you know, minorities who commit the same crime, it's like, oh no, we need to treat this seriously because it could flower into something much larger. Um, and, uh, and then there's the, the issue of, you know, once you, once you go into jail, often for very small crimes, often for crimes that whites wouldn't go to jail for, once you go to jail, you can then be deprived of all sorts of civil rights once you get back out. And, you know, you need to uh, declare it on your job applications. Uh, It has issues um, in some areas with voting and other things like that, where you're almost reduced at that point to a second-class citizen. And and it almost doesn't matter what you did as as a crime. What matters is the fact that you 
have a criminal record. And so we have a huge portion of the population that has a criminal record. And what that ends up doing is is perpetuating the, um, or I guess it, it ends up hindering the ability to be treated equally with uh, white Americans. So you're saying you're saying before you jump quickly to look at one data point, look at as much of the picture as you're able to. Yeah, you you want to look you want to look widely. You want to look at you know what kind of what kind of um, care is there for the children? What are their schools like? Um, you know, what do they have for after school programs? What, um, I, yeah, I guess if, if their parents are be, if, you know, if someone's parents are being taken out because they've taken out of a child's life because they've been thrown in prison for a couple of years for a minor offense like how can you even calculate the effect of that mm-hmm. on a child mm-hmm. yeah. and stuff like that defies easy statistics um and it's so connected so so when looking at at, at um race and crime in america you want to take as broad a lens as possible looking as broadly as you can at the American experience. And you also want to take a long historical look at, you know, why, why is this the case? You know, why is it the case that, um, that we have such a high number of African Americans in jail? And I think that you will find a historical pattern, um, that, that, um, and, and a historical narrative that, um, that shows that there's there's something bigger and longer and deeper going on in American history than just these individual acts of crime. Yeah, and and I think that one thing that sociologists have found is you know this this recipe of poverty plus the introduction of uh, any kind of drug into a community equals crime, and we we've seen this. Uh, in black communities but now we're also starting to see it in um rural white communities as well when you have poverty plus the introduction of drugs it leads to crime not not because of the um inferiority or because that particular group of people is more prone to be a criminal but because that's what happens and so when, when you look at the history you can see um, white Americans have placed black Americans intentionally into that perfect recipe for crime. And so, you know, we're not trying to exonerate people for the crimes that they commit. But to your point, Matt, it is really important to take a look back and see, oh, we actually caused the factors that have led to this. Mm-hmm. And and I think also the loss of hope. Yes. The feeling that, you know, this hasn't you know, yes, things have gotten better over 400 years in a lot of ways, but in so many ways, racism and prejudice just puts on a different costume and plays the mm-hmm. exact same role. And so I think a, a loss of hope in a lot of communities that, you know, things aren't going to change. And, um, you know, whether it's economic circumstances or educational circumstances or better health care or better pay, um, there. I think just a sense that, you know, white America hasn't listened for hundreds of years and they're probably not going to. 
and um, and I think that contributes to a lot of the rage that is is daily in our newsfeed at the present. Yeah, I th- something you said um, you mentioned about if like if a parent is unjustly taken away from a child, and that child is forced to suffer because of that, like how do you how do you calculate the repayment? And I often will hear white Americans say something to the effect of, well, we gave, we made it easier for them to go to college or we, we did. And, and it just, when you look at this history, I just have to say like, how in the world could you calculate what kind of loss this community has suffered at the hands of their oppressors that you could think that possibly making it a little easier for them to get a college education could pay back what has happened yeah and i and i think a lot of americans would even object to that (laughs) yes oh yeah definitely okay um so this has been a, a lot of history and information um but maybe a good way to wrap up if actually i should check have you have we reached 2020 yet (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, we have. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my, I guess my wrap-up question, in what is the biggest or maybe the, the few biggest ways you see this history that you have shared impact how people act today? In what ways does this 400-year history influence what's going on right now? I think as on the part of the African-American community, I think that they are desperately trying to be heard and that there is a, there is a pain that stretches back hundreds of years and they are trying to communicate it to whites and often finding that, that the white community isn't, isn't interested in listening and, and they're, they're growing louder. They're, um, they're making more demands, and the more demands they make, the more they're ignored, and um, or not so much ignored, but misinterpreted. And so I, I think, I think we see an accumulation of of a desire to be heard, a desire to be understood, a desire to have whites see that they've caused pain. Um, that's one way of, of the history impacts. Um, I think I think it's disturbing to see how how much stays the same and over time and how you know, yes, progress is made. Yes, all sorts of things have changed. But so many of the arguments, so much, so much of the racism, so much of the moral superiority and racial superiority stays eerily similar. Um, and I think, I think that if white Christians in particular were to be more in touch with their history, to know more about the dark parts of their history, and to confess that, I think that that's the starting point. The starting point is confessing, yes, this is American history. Thou shalt not lie applies to historians as well. Hmm. And 
and we do not have a good history in America. And the church needs to realize that it, it uh, in many ways, it made the situation worse. And I think this, even though the church had so many resources for unity and, um, and racial reconciliation, even though scripture is bursting with, with passages that should break down racism, um, often for convenience, for the, for, for greed, for a whole host of reasons, um, the church became part of the problem. Um, I actually want to open it up to Chris and Michelle and maybe I'll share as well. What, what were some of the things that you saw in history, um, in the history that Matt gave that you see most prevalently today? What's the, what's the biggest thing that Matt said that you can see is influencing the year 2020? Um, yeah, I would say, and I don't know if this, not to be a non-answer, but obviously like everything that you have said and shared with us, Matt, has implications to today. I think something um, that really stuck out to me and that I see as a common thread or theme is just the constant, um, uh, there's probably a better way to describe how I'm going to describe this all, but um, the constant covering up or um, almost the sense of like, oh yes, we fixed that problem. And so we're moving onward, we're moving forward. And so I think this overarching lack of true listening has led us to this place of, of thinking that we've listened and thinking that we've lamented and thinking that we're moving um, onward when it, it just seems like from the very beginning of this nation, um, that just never happened. There wasn't an actual listening and there wasn't an actual lamenting. Therefore, there wasn't actual legislation that would reflect um, true listening and true lamenting. And so, yeah, I know that's not really totally answering your question, Zach, but I think, <laughs> okay. I think everything that you said, mm -hmm. Matt, kind of, kind of points to that being the case. And it's just, I think at one point, Matt, you had said it's just taken on different forms or different costumes. Um, that history that we we're learning and um, the way that much of that history is rooted in racism. Mm -hmm. I think I had like two thoughts that jumped out um, probably so much more because I usually process over a long period of time. <laughs> but um, one is that I think as I look through the history that you took us through, I'm realizing a tendency that exists among uh, those with power, whether political or religious or any other sort of power, economic power. It's, um, and I think it's like, maybe it's linked to the idea of conservatism or am I saying that right? Being conservative. Mm -hmm. um, I, I see that like, there is this great fear of, of the power structures being unended. And you saw that after the Civil War when African Americans were like elected to power quickly and how terrified the white establishment was. Oh my goodness, there's a black senator. Mm -hmm. um, and they quickly moved to um, they quickly moved to make sure that like 
the power structures were reinforced and that the, those in power could maintain their position. And I think the reason why that's relevant for today is that um, it, very much today, the those power structures are still held by white people. Um, I, I live in a city where a lot of the power structures are controlled by white people, um, even though they are not, as far as I'm aware, they are not the majority. Um, I, and I, I don't know when the last time was that the city of Bridgeport had a black mayor, but I, I, even when you're thinking of the church, I'm seeing that there's like this really strong tendency towards like, let's maintain the status quo. Let's not, let's not mix things up too much. Let's not, um, let's not stir the pot too much. And that, that's not the way of Jesus first off. And, um, and then the second thing, I think that you did a good job of helping us see why, um, why it's appropriate for the church to lament and to repent today. Uh, I think I've known intuitively in my heart that the church in 2020 should repent and lament, but I lacked the, the historical background to like clearly say why. Um, but I don't know how you could look at this history and not just, I, I mean, my, I'm, yeah, I don't know how you could look at this history and not say, I'm sorry. I, I never owned a slave, but I'm sorry. I know I've benefited from this system that is so messed up. So um, I think those are the two thoughts that jumped out to me. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think for me, it's it's twofold as well. Number one, you can see really clearly and really factually how systematic and intentional this oppression was um for some reason we have well actually i'll get to that in a minute that's my <laughs> second point um f- for very specific reasons we have this um look back at history and maybe if you're an international student listening you can tell me if you if this sounds familiar to you in your history of the united states where black americans were enslaved until the year 1865 and or soon after that uh and then you know maybe there was a little bit of oppression until the 1960s and the civil rights and then everything was fine and you can clearly see in the history that that's not the case that immediately after slavery the oppression continued they just found new ways to do it and up until the 1960s the oppression um even though progress was made the oppression continued. It just became more subtle and more ingrained in how they did things instead of being explicit. And so just the way that from beginning to end, there has been um, real hurt and damage done specifically and intentionally to black Americans. Um, And so it's no wonder that we see the inequalities that we see today. And the second thing that I I think I, I saw really clearly um, and that was eye-opening to me, was the ideas and beliefs that were way in the beginning that were started that I see even today. And from the very beginning, people started to make little steps to try and justify slavery or justify the oppression of Black Americans, Native Americans, um, other 
groups of people as well. And so many of those same arguments continue today. And so if you're listening, whether you're an American or a student, if you have heard arguments that are trying to minimize the damage of what's happened or are trying to make the argument that it's just individual cases or that maybe even that Christians shouldn't get involved in politics or maybe you believe in very subtle ways that white people are superior to other kinds of people, looking back and seeing that those ideas were around for a long time and they were created for, you know, they were created in order to justify the damage that was done to these people. And so it's just amazing to me that these beliefs have traveled through the years to almost untouched to where they are today. And, and I know that because I can see it in my own life. And at some different points in my life, I've believed a lot of those things, whether I was ready to admit it or not. And I know that I was raised in an environment that believed those things, whether they were ready to admit it or not. So it's just, you know, 400 years later, in terms of the ideas and beliefs that we have, very few things have changed. Well, um, hopefully this is just the first part of what we want to do, um, because it's, it's no use if we just uncover the problem and then don't do anything to try and um, steer people in the right direction of, of how to solve the problem. So it... In part two, um, we're going to talk about how the message of Jesus, not the message of Jesus as interpreted by people who own slaves, but the message of Jesus in its true form can help um, us to understand how to move forward. Um, but I just want to take a minute and thank you, Matt, for coming on, um, not only for the time that, that you spent with us, but for the time that you've spent becoming an expert on these things. And I, I hope that more and more people can listen to you and other voices talking about the history of America and trying to use it to figure out how to move forward today. So thank you. Oh, thank you for having me on. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Yeah. yeah. All right. I think that's it for today. We'll see you guys next time. Thank you so much for listening to these two episodes. I hope that they've both informed you and challenged you to reconsider your own ideas of what it means to talk about racism in America. Dr. Rowley has shown how the beliefs that many Americans hold today about racism stretch back hundreds of years and how the injustices we saw then continue to happen in different ways all the way up to 2020 just scratched the surface of this topic. So if you want to learn more, I would strongly encourage you to start by checking out the two books that Dr. Rowley mentioned, The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby and Give Us the Ballot by Ari Berman. As I mentioned, next we want to show you how the message of Jesus can offer us hope for dealing with the injustice we see around the world, but specifically America right now. One of the most disturbing things to us as we recorded these two episodes was learning of all the ways the American church twisted the Bible and the teachings of Jesus to encourage the enslavement and oppression of non-whites throughout history. We want to try to untwist that message and show clearly why followers of Jesus should be leading the charge to change America and make it more just. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.